I'm honored to be here. Please allow me to apologize um, if I've disappointed somebody. You came to think uh, the Christian artist Matt Marr was here, and you are highly disappointed because you won't get a, a musical note out of me. But I have so much to share. I want to jump right into the message for tonight. Again, my name is Matthew Mayer. What I'm here to answer, really, is how does purpose come from pain? How does beauty rise from ashes? How does a God take what we do call evil and recycle it? and make something beautiful out of it. I hope to answer those questions by the end of the night. I'm also here to talk about conviction and redemption. If you're young, a student, please hear what I say next. A conviction that I failed to guard as a young adult. And then redemption, of course, that was granted to me through failure. So much to share, never enough time to do it. I begin by explaining what I call the I generation. You know what the I generation is? It's not just an age group, it's all groups. It comes with the idea that though technology has advanced, you know what hasn't? Human nature. The Bible still says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It also says there's nothing new under the sun, which means this. Human nature, same problems, same failures, same sin epidemic that literally cannot be dealt with with man alone. So I'm here to talk about those things. But I'm also convinced that with the I generation, we get something called the I economy. Now, most likely you probably just put away your iPhone. Usually when I travel, if I'm in a, a theater or an auditorium, I bring my iMac. I send out iMessages. And what I'm noticing is how this world is bent towards convincing you that your eye is something special. So what I do is I put the individual called Matt on the throne of my own heart, and I make selfish decisions. And when I win, I always lose. Now, similar to Adam and Eve of old in Genesis, we're all invited to conform by grabbing what I call the temporal apple from the tree of the world around us, and it's inviting us and beckoning us and even screaming at us to conform. Let me convince you. As I, on social media, Facebook says, see me. Twitter says, follow me. Instagram says, like me. Snapchat says, watch me. Me, 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 me. Now, if you're not convinced of that, let me say it like this. Whatever is trending in your life is a result of where you are lending your life. In other words, is the gospel trending in your life, or is gossip trending in your life? I can tell you, if it's the gospel, you've lent your life to the Word of God, because the gospel will come out of you. If it's gossip, you haven't touched the Word of God. Maybe it's hate. Maybe it's love. Wherever you are lending your life will be the result of what is actually trending in your life. Now, I know that because I look back in hindsight in my own life. When I was born and raised in a strong Christian household, when I was exposed to the gospel, when I was at Literally, at night, meeting with mom and dad around a table, studying the Word of God. That's what was coming out of my life. But you know what happened? Growing up. Growing up got in the way of faith. And here I am making decisions, small ones, not large ones, that are causing me to compromise. In fact, a small compromise today can take you so far tomorrow if you're not aware where you started. And a lot of times we're not even aware where we are because we are so wrapped up in self, so wrapped up in the individual person that I think I was created to be, and I lose sight of the actual creator. So here I am, raised in a strong Christian household. I say mom and dad didn't raise me and my three older brothers in church. They raised us in Christ. So I knew better, but I didn't always do better. In fact, the compromise took me on a different path. That path I will call complacency. You know what complacency is? Complacency, a place you don't want to be. Complacency is, in fact, the most dangerous place to be. Complacency looks like this. You carry the Word of God, but you don't let the Word of God carry you. In fact, you can come to sizzling summer, but you don't leave on fire. That's complacency. Complacency is wearing a cross, but not bearing your cross. You see, I was on that 
I was reading my word, doing devotionals, going to church, but I would never go deeper. In fact, I stopped pursuing my Savior, and I got wrapped up in the ways of the world. In fact, let me give you a little resume. I was academically and athletically in a league of my own. I won sectional and state championships for basketball as the starting point guard when I was in high school. I led the state of New Jersey in goals for soccer my junior and senior year. I made first team this, all star that. My performance rewarded me a full scholarship to Temple University in Philadelphia, where I repeated this cycle of excelling. Now, though I'm excelling academically and athletically, guess what? I'm going through the motions spiritually. And when you're going through the motions spiritually, church, don't be surprised when God allows pain into your life. Why? Pain is the fuel of passion. You see, when we're complacent, a good God who loves us and wants to move us, pull out pain to touch your life. And he allows pain to move us out of our comfort zone. Because technically, if I'm left to my own devices, I'll stay right where I am in my little comfort area. So God says, I'm going to allow pain to touch your life. What did pain look like in my life at this time? As a junior at Temple University, I left my final, my phone rings, I'm excited to go home for a long-awaited college winter break. If you're a college student or you're a parent, you already know, your, your children, your students, they're looking forward to that 30 days off, Christmas time, see all old friends. My phone rings, I'm about to pack my bags, and it's my mom, and she's crying. And through tears, and through a moan, I hear her say, he's dead. I did not need to ask who she was talking about. I knew she was talking about my oldest brother, John. John was 28 years old. He just had a four-month-old daughter. So instead of going home for Christmas and celebrating the birth of Jesus, I'm going home to plan a funeral and bury my older brother. But as I think about that time in my life, it was a time where God used pain to knock me out of complacency back to the things of eternity. Doesn't Solomon write in Ecclesiastes that it is better to be in a house of mourning than the house of feasting. You know what I witnessed? I witnessed my mother and my father, by God's grace alone, grieving the loss of my father's namesake, John Jr., only three feet away from a casket. Yet I watched him have a peace that surpasses all understanding. To the naked eye, could not be explained. In fact, they would tell you if they were here that it was the peace of God which transcends all understanding. It guarded their heart and their mind. I watched the beginning of beauty rise from ashes. I went back to college, a changed young student, got back into my devotions, started to pursue Jesus at a level that I had not done in years. But you know what happens? When you stop feeding your spirit, you are bound to feed your flesh. It is automatic. And I began to feed my flesh. I'm a senior now at Temple University. I get drafted to play professional soccer. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of my older brother. I'm a first-round draft pick, ninth overall. I'm going out on that playing circuit. Excited to be a rookie, excited to be in that world. I was moving quick. Now, my moving quick may look differently than your moving quick. I was believing my own height. I thought I was the source of my own success. I didn't use the platform playing a sport to glorify God. I used it to glorify me. Now, moving quick, God finds ways to slow you down, doesn't he? He slows us down because he loves us, and he has a better plan for us than we think we have for ourselves. March 1st, 2009, last pro soccer game I would ever play in. I tore my ACL, my meniscus, two ligaments in my knee, routine turn on the turf, popped the entire knee out. I remember going down to the turf, knowing instantly that two ligaments had snapped. I felt them in my knee. The, the MRI confirmed, indeed, I tore it. Surgery was scheduled the following week. Now, I would love to be able to stand on this platform and tell each and every one of you that when that happened, I fell back on my faith foundation. That I fell on my back and I looked up and said, God, you got my attention. You slowed me down. Now what? 
But that's not what happened. I didn't fall back on my faith foundation. I fell right into the ways of the world. Now, here's the irony. It was a Wednesday. I hobble into the historical spectrum where Adam Bruckner, who was up here, is one of my player coaches at the time. I walk in there with my older brother to do a nationally broadcasting interview with Athletes in Action. And with Athletes in Action, the platform was, how do you glorify God as a professional athlete on that platform? And I sat in the locker room, blessed to be where I was, sitting next to my older brother, answering the questions from the interviewer, asking me, what's it like to be a Christian in the world of professional sports? And I gave him all the right answers. Every time he asked me, of course, I gave him the expected cliche response to a supposed Christian athlete. But two days later, those very words out of my mouth would not be close to the state of my heart. See, I gave him what he wanted to hear. And on that Friday night, instead of staying in against wiser judgment, I decided to go out and about in the city of Philadelphia. Went out to several locations. I often say at this particular point, I got into my vehicle after I had been drinking at an establishment, and I never made it to my destination church. In fact, I was responsible for an at-fault drunk driving fatality on March 7th, 2009. I say that night, for me, has not yet ended. Because the very consequences which are real because of a decision, they still echo in my life today. And again, it's in hindsight that I sit here and I am humbled to say that, yes, in that moment, my world shattered. In fact, my soul was shackled. When I found out the news, I'm sitting in a jail cell, and I'm literally wrapping my mind around what just happened. I'm considering the consequences as early as that jail cell scene, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm fine. Injury free. My passenger's fine. He's with me that night. OnStar tells me emergency response is on the way. I kind of exit my vehicle, cars are pulling over, people are jumping out, aiding and assisting. I see the other vehicle I struck on its side, 30 yards back. I see four individuals standing outside of that vehicle. I reason, I think, they're fine, we're fine, it's fine. I'm in the jail cell. I'm thinking, inconsequentially, I'm going to get a DUI. Drinking, driving, crash, DUI. I'm going to have to pay for the damage. Fines, insurance, all these thoughts. But I could not take them any further, considering where I was sitting. Then I watched state police walk back and forth in front of the jail cell. Some would stop, look in. Others would keep moving. I became curious. Something was going on outside of the jail cell. The commotion, the activity. I became hypersensitive. I started to listen in. And then I heard it. And then I heard a conversation between the dispatch center and those who responded to the accident scene. The church, this is exactly what I heard sitting on that bench. Accident on the Atlantic City Expressway is currently being cleaned up. So I listened. The driver in the black Escalade, they said, is in custody. The driver in the town and country is deceased. And I remember hearing that word. In fact, as I say that word every single time, eight plus years later, that word literally debilitates my emotional state. I feel it on the inside. My entire world, everything I thought was my security, my identity, all that I thought I was supposed to be doing in life completely came crashing down. In fact, I cannot verbalize the weight of that word today. I can't express to you how many people's lives have been affected because of that word. I remember going into an interview room only hours after hearing that. I am in a fog. I'm sitting there across from prosecutor office, detectives, state police officers. They're about to tell me verbally that 
dispatch was actually the truth. I walk in, I sit down, they say, Matthew, brace yourself. Then they tell me what happened. I ask them a question, is the other driver deceased? They said, yes, son, I lost it. I wept, I cried. Moments later, a knock came on the door. A secretary came in and said, his father's here. She announced his title, Chief John Mayer from Lower Cape May is here. Every cop in the room looked at me and said, we cannot believe you didn't tell us who your father was. I looked at them and I said, it didn't make a difference. My father came into that room. He addressed his colleagues. And then he came right over to me. And he kissed me on my forehead. And he said, son, we are going to get through this. And in that moment, I saw an illustration of what God did in an infinitely greater way. You see, I sat there in my absolute worst. Yet my father showed me his best. He showed me his love. And I realized today, no matter what I've done, a God that is good, a good, good father, still loves us in spite of us, still extends his grace and mercy. I left that room, found out I was being charged with first-degree aggravated manslaughter, found out I'm eventually going to prison. It is true that sometimes God will allow you to hit rock bottom to discover that he is the rock at the bottom. Because when I hit hard, I found myself completely humbled. I found myself pursuing God's forgiveness at a level I've never done so before. It came to light. You see, what I knew up here my entire life, all the verses, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that when I was in my sin, Christ came and died for me, that he works all things together for good when people love him and he has a purpose for us. I know the plans that I have for you. All that came to light. It hit my heart so real. I knew there was one thing as a Christian, finally, wearing the name without shame, that I had to do. And it was to seek forgiveness from the people I harmed. Without any excuses, no blame, I knew the Christian should be the most accountable person in the world. When we mess up, we own up. And I had nothing else to give except for my heart to this family. The day before sentencing day where I'll be sentenced to up to 10 years in state prison, my family gathered together. We prayed. My mother closed out her prayer by saying, we believe your will to be done, and you hold the king's heart in your hand, the lawyer's heart in your hand, the prosecutor's heart in your hand, and this family's heart in your hand. And like the rivers of water, you will turn them whichever way you will. She said, amen. We wiped our tears as a family. We went into that next day with such peace. I stood before a judge. I spoke my heart to the judge. I apologized to him for having to proceed over me. I then turned to my victim's family, and with whatever words I could possibly muster up, I said, I am so sorry. No amount of words I could say today can amount to anything. If I could trade places with your father, I would in a second. I gave him everything I had within me. I sat down. His oldest son, his name's Noon, got up, and he began to yell at the top of his lungs. He began to tell everybody, do you have any idea what it's like to get a phone call where your daddy is dead? The whole courtroom was whimpering. I sat at the bench, giving him my eye contact. He then turned to me and said, and you destroyed my world. Then he stopped. And it was like a heavenly composure came over him. He looked at me, and his very next words were, but I forgive you, my brother. And he came over, the bailiff told me to stand, and was right there in the courtroom where we hugged, held each other. I said to him, I'm so sorry. It was on that day 
when I was physically incarcerated for the next five and a half years of my life that I was spiritually liberated. I went away in a cold, dark cell, warm on the inside, free on the inside. But you better believe reminders would be looming. The fact that I was confined to four walls, reminded by a face sheet calling me felon, reminded by officers that wanted to keep you down, reminded by every waking day that I was in condemnation, in punishment, and I technically would believe that I was the decision I made. Unless I countered those feelings with the Word of God. You see, I learned early, if I was going to wait for the entire day to get my mind set on God, it was too late. So the only way to combat such chaos, such confusion, such violence, I had to get up earlier than hell, literally. Hell woke up at 6 a.m. when the lights came on and people were miserable and angry in prison. I said, I can't wait for that. i got to wake up earlier. So I would wake up at 5 a.m. on my knees. I'd get to a table on the housing unit and I would open up the Word of God. And it was the first time in my life where the words came to life. And I literally said, wow, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let it put you into his mold. Don't let your individual or yourself sit on the throne of your heart. Give Jesus that position. And it says, he will transform you from the inside out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Each day before the day could be set on me, I renewed my mind against it. So here I am with the peace of God. Let me say this. The love of God is always peaceable. The love of God is always powerful, and the love of God is always purposeful. And if I believe the love of God was in me, then I had to find a way to show my peers around me. And here I am opening the good book every morning at this table. Now I said to myself, if the good book is open before me, and I serve a good God who loves me, then how can I show my peers that he's good? And there was only one way to do it. One, be a light. Isn't that what he tells us to do? Let your light shine before men. Let me say you are the light of the world, but we're not inherit light, we are reflective light. And I thought about that. I said, if he's inherit light, he's like the sun. But if I'm reflective light, I'm like the moon. I am in darkness unless I allow him to reflect off of me. So each day when my peers would walk by me at that table with the word of God open before me, I would turn to them before they can even wipe the darkness out of their eyes on their way to the bathroom. And I would say, good morning. Now you have no idea how dangerous that was in your little comfortable seats on this little here lawn. But let me tell you something. Saying good morning to people in prison, they will tell you violently why it's, there's nothing good about morning in prison. But the next day, all 37 men that walk by me, good morning. Without a doubt, no matter what the response was, I found a way to let them know there was something good about morning. And there was no other way to do it. If the Word of God's in front of me, then that's the way to show them that there's always something good in our day. Now, the one guy that hated hearing that in the very beginning, over time, the more I stayed consistent at it, I found myself literally reading one day and having someone hover over back of me. I feel him. I kind of turn my neck and look, and it's this one guy, and he's looking at me, and he's going like this. And I say, good morning. And he goes, good morning, Matt. You see, what he craved, two simple words. I always say to the young ones I deal with, matters matter. Saying good morning to someone, saying good night to someone, saying how are you, saying God bless. There are simple things that show the light of God to a dark world. Now, out of the word of God, I became an influencer. I wanted to influence my peers for the good. I wanted to be salt and light. And what I learned about salt was salt revives, revival. When Jesus said you were the salt of the earth, he was saying there must be a revival beginning on the inside of you before a revival can begin on the outside of you. So I set out about my day 
trying to get people to love of Jesus that they technically would not get on any other way because they did not go to church. They didn't care for church. They didn't care for Christians. One day I'm in the gymnasium. I'm working out. I'm minding my own business. And I had a guy come up to me. He was new. And he says, hey, you go to medical? I said, no, I don't go to medical. He says, you sure you don't go to medical? I said, I don't go to medical. Next day, same thing. Comes up to me. I'm in the middle of working out. You go to medical? No, man, I don't go to medical. You see, what he was trying to figure out was, was I going to the hospital in the prison? And the reason why an inmate would go there is because he wanted to get medication. Maybe he was diabetic. Maybe he was sick. But a lot of inmates want to go to the hospital to get pain medication so they can numb their day away. Now, here he is coming up to me a third day, a fourth day. Do you go to medical? I finally said, listen, man, I don't go to medical. Why are you asking me this? He said, listen, I've been in prison before, and I'm curious if you go to medical because I want to know what drug you're on. He said, listen, nobody smiles that much in prison, man. He said, you have to go to medical, and if you go to medical, I want to know what you're taking. I said, listen, man, you want to know who my drug dealer is? I only have a hope dealer, and his name's Jesus. His name was Tommy. Tommy was a heroin addict. Tommy was one hit away from overdosing. Tommy got moved on to my housing unit. Tommy joined the Bible study. Tommy gave his life to Jesus Christ. Tommy is out to this day serving the Lord. He's married, and he has a child. This is the power of forgiveness and God's grace. Being salt. You see, you don't have to force people to drink. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But church, our responsibility isn't to make anybody drink. Our responsibility is to make people thirsty for what we have. That's what salt does. Salt makes people thirsty. When they see that you have peace and they want it, when you have the hope of life and they crave it, you simply bring them to the one that says, come to me and I will give you the living water. You pass them off to Jesus. Now, every day wasn't like that. Days would hit hard. I'd be reminded what I did. I'd be reminded of the decision I made that took someone's life. But as quickly as all those thoughts would flood me, is as quickly as that God's good graces will remind me that I gave my son Jesus for the things you've done. There's nothing you can ever do that is greater than that sacrifice. Did you hear me, church? There's not a single thing that you can do that is greater than what Jesus did for you. No mistake you can make, no shame, no guilt. That sacrifice on the cross, when Jesus went there on your behalf, he said, my arms will always be wide open. You can come boldly to me. I found my hope in the Word of God each day. You know what else came out of the Word of God? Integrity. Integrity always comes from the Word of God. One day at this table that I talked about earlier, I'm sitting there. I'm minding my own business. I hear a conversation with a group of my peers. They're talking about setting somebody else up in a very bad way. And they wanted to set him up so they can rob him. Now, here I am in God's Word. They know what I stand for. They are actually talking loud because they want everybody to hear their plan. Their plan was to set this guy up. They set him up. They can rob him. If they can rob him, they can get what he had in his trunk. In his trunk, he had cigarettes. You say that's not a big deal. In prison, they don't sell cigarettes anymore at that time. These cigarettes are worth thousands of dollars. So these guys are out. Let me give you some commentary. These guys are bloods. They are part of the blood gang. And they are literally outnumbering everybody on the housing unit. Fifteen guys. And I hear their plan. I stop what I'm doing. I try to talk them down with my eyes. I let them know I disagree with their plan. You want to know why? Because Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. 
not to act is to act. So I can't let this plan go down. I can't because the Word of God says, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord. Well, they send one of their scapegoats over to taunt the guy they want to set up. The guy heard the plan himself. He's not responding. A fight breaks out just like they planned. The fight goes to the ground. They're making a lot of noise. The officers hear it. They call a code. They run down the housing unit. They throw the two guys on the ground. They take them out. You know what the bloods do? Fourteen of them. They go into the area. They grab the trunk. have a lock on it. They take it back into their area, and they're going to break into it. My blood pressure is rising. I have to make a decision. And here's the second part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote. I spun it this way. Whatever you permit in life, you promote. Did you get that? Whatever you permit in life. As Christians, when we permit certain behaviors, when we sit off to the sideline, indifferent, apathetic, and we just permit life to go along around us, conforming to the ways of the enemy, we're actually promoting it. We're actually saying, you know what? I'm not going to step in and stop that. I'm not going to speak out for the truth. I'm going to allow the ways of the world to be greater than the truth of God. And I permit it. I promote it. I'm not going to allow that to happen. They already got the trunk. I got a good friend on the housing unit. His name was Little John. Little John wasn't on the housing unit when it went down. Little John was coming back. They terminated all movements in the prison. Little John comes up to me. He says, Matt, what happened? I said, Little John, you won't believe it. They got so-and-so to lock up. They got his trunk. They're going to break into it right now. Little John looked me straight in the eyes. He says, are you going to let it go down like that? I said, you know I'm not. Little John began to walk down the housing unit in the direction where the 14 bloods are waiting to break into the trunk. Let me give you some commentary again. Little John is a 330-pound man. Little John just so happens to be a former mob enforcer for a crime family in New York City. Little John takes his 330-pound, 6'3 self down the housing unit, walks into the area, stares every last blood in their eye. He yanks the trunk from the one guy, stares everybody back in their eye, walks back down the housing unit, comes into my 3 by 8 area, puts the trunk on the ground, and he just sits on it. They didn't like that. They come flying out. They come running down. They come packing in. Now we got 14 bloods in my 3 by 8 area. Little John's sitting on the trunk, and I'm standing off to the side. And they're all saying the same thing to us. They're all basically saying, and I don't repeat what they said, why are you getting involved in what we're doing? Why don't you get this? Look away like every other punk on this housing unit. Little John very calmly said these words. He said, if it has to do with Matt pointing to me, it has to do with me pointing to himself. And if you want what's inside of this trunk, come and get it. Remember, they all looked at each other, couldn't believe the audacity. Then their OG stepped out. Their OG took one giant, exaggerated step forward. Literally took a step into my area. One exaggerated, giant step. Their OG took one step in. Yeah. For all the vanillas here, OG means original gangster. And you just said, I can't believe I heard that in church. This is church outside. There's different rules out here. And their OG pointed at me in the face, and he pointed at little John. and said, come on, fellas, you already know. Now that you've gotten involved in what we're doing, we're going to be involved in what you're doing. You know what that means, right? He goes, I can put one order out and have you touch, which meant stab. You know that because you've seen that. He said, I can put one order out and have you guys jump and stomp out right here, right now. He then said this word. Why did you put yourselves out there like that? He was pleading with us. Why couldn't you look away? Little John looked at Sky in the eye and said one word. One word that I will never forget. One word that Little John did not know a couple years earlier. One word that I watched Little John learn and live over time. 
One word that governs my life today. Little John looked this OG in the eye and he said the word integrity. That's all he said back. The gang members looked at each other. I didn't know what the word meant. But they left our area. So why did I tell you that story? Because the word of God says, he who walks with integrity walks securely. And when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. You see, it was the right thing to do. To show the love of Jesus, yes, sometimes you have to step out and stand on the truth, the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and trust that God will have your back. Dr. Charles Stanley said it like this, obey God and leave the consequences up to him. Let me tell you about Little John. See, Little John came up to me one day. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, Matt, I've been watching you. That's something you do not want to hear in prison. Matt, I've been watching you closely, he said. He said, I was hoping that you would fail. I said, what? I was hoping you would curse. I was hoping you would fight, that you would bicker, that you would complain, that you would argue. I was hoping so that I could run up to you and say, that book you read every day, you're nothing but a hypocrite. You're nothing but a phony. You see what little John was? He was a Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of all people's faith. Jews, Muslims, Christians, anybody that carried a book, he said, you're all phonies. And what he said next blew me away. He said, but you never gave me that opportunity. Little John was a soldier for the Godfather. Today, Little John is a soldier for God the Father. Little John said to me exactly what my mom used to say to me when I was a kid. When I would run out the house, go out into that world, my mom would say, Matthew, you may be the only Bible somebody reads. And that phrase never hit me harder and when I realized little John was watching. And I'm here to tell you, there's a little John in your life and they're watching you. They're listening to the words you say. They're watching the illustrations or the example you put down. And they're waiting for a reason to call you a hypocrite. And by God's grace alone, church, we should never give the world that reason. You may be the only Bible somebody reads. Right before I got out, I served 55 months in prison. Right before I got out, thinking about where I had been, where God had led me, the protection he had on me, the favor. I remember thinking about what the world looked like beyond the wall. That much time went by. I sat at that table and I wrote down this. I am a convict. And I wrote that word, that phrase, because it really hit me that when I get out of here, I am a convict. I wrote, I am a convict. But as quickly as that phrase came out of me, right underneath of it, I wrote, but I have conviction. I am a convict, but I have conviction. Now I'm reading a passage in Colossians, and it's an interesting passage. The writer Paul says these words. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. I looked up the word image. I found it so fascinating. I said, wow, Jesus is the image of the invisible God? You don't know what God looks like? It's as if God himself took a selfie, and he posted, and out came Jesus. That's what God looks like. What does God look like? It's Jesus. So I looked up the word image. He is the image of the invisible God. And I found the word image to mean icon. I said, icon? Wow. In the English language, we use the word icon when we put celebrities on platforms. We say, Madonna's an icon. She's iconic. Michael Jackson was an icon. And the word of God says, no, the only icon is Jesus. He is the icon of the invisible God. I wrote that down. Jesus is icon. Then I have my three sentences. I am a convict. That's heavy. But I have conviction. 
Jesus is icon. As I put all those words together, I found this phrase pop out. Iconviction. And I said, if I'm ever going to put an I in front of anything ever again, it's going to be my own conviction. It's going to be my faith, and I'm going to own it. This isn't mommy and daddy's faith anymore. A lot of you guys, you're owning a faith that your parents put on you, and you've never taken personal ownership of it yourself. I left prison on August 3rd, 2014, a man on fire, knowing God would make much of himself through me if I give him my life, and I give him the throne of my heart. And with such conviction, I am humbled to go out and share two messages. One for the believer here tonight, that you may be the only Bible somebody reads, and people are watching you. And the subtitle is, Are You Legible? Is what you're living out legible? Are they able to see Jesus in you? And then I say to the one who came here tonight, you may have never called yourself a believer. You may have never given your life to Jesus. My message for you is, your greatest need is God's greatest deed. And your greatest need is forgiveness. You are in need of forgiveness today. And God had put his plan in order when he sent us Jesus Christ. And he forgives all who come to him with a repentant heart, an open heart, willing to receive his grace and his mercy. I know I don't deserve it. But God says, I will still give it. So as I close, I want to remind you that the arms of the Father are wide open. Don't let anything hold you back. If you need to come recommit your life, you want to take a step up and a stand out for the truth of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter if you're young. Doesn't matter if you're old. You come. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go backstage. I'm going to take the microphone off. I'm going to pop my shoes off. And I'm going to get in this pool right here. I know Pastor Bob's going to come up. And we're going to invite you to come if you want to recommit your life or you want to get baptized for the first time. You know, there's all forms of baptism. One coming up publicly, which is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. You're saying when you go down and you come up, you are representing what Jesus did on that cross. When he went down into that grave, he went down. But when he came up, there was life and eternal life in him and him alone. My baptism was prison. Went through a down experience so God could bring me out and up. And I stand here again totally humbled that there would be an audience called a church that would gather to hear anything God did in my life. But that's what he does. He takes us when we're broken, and he says, now I can use you because you're open. That's my story. My name is Matthew Mayer, and I'd rather stand alone with Jesus than sit in a crowd without him. God bless.